Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, the third edition. Um, Third episode, even. Indeed. Um, um, I'm Abby, by the way, for our new listeners. Oh yeah, and I'm Daniel. Um, and yeah, we we do have some new listeners. We've released our first couple of episodes, um, so welcome if you are new to this show. Uh, yeah, how are you feeling about now being an internet sensation? Has it gone to your head yet? Kind of tired of getting chased around train stations and things, but apart from that, it's fine. What about you? Uh, well, you're, you have a bunch of handlers now, and they told me, do not make eye contact with Dr. Jenkins Smith. He cannot pod under these conditions. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Of the two of us, we know who's gonna be the diva. They're always the wrangling me and things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Your entourage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Administering sedatives. And we've, I believe, we've had um, a first official book recommendation. Yes, the first write write-in book recommendation from our institution's librarian. <laughs> Rich, our librarian, suggested. I think he's a he's a kindred spirit who listened to our first episode and liked your idea of a book with no plot but with twists. So he has suggested that we read *Berg* by Anne Quinn. I have no idea what this book is. I uh, have a hopelessly mainstream taste in literature, I think. So um, yeah, this this looks a bit. Arty, doesn't it? But yeah, maybe maybe that'll be a good shout for the next series. So, what is our text today? It is a little-known work inspired by a Kate Bush pop song called Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. So, I will do the the typical warning. So, we're going to spoil this, obviously. When we recap it, um, the trigger warnings for this. This is a very violent book. It's a very emotionally and physically abusive book. There's definitely a bit of sex stuff we're going to talk about, possibly some racism, probably a little bit of incesty stuff, a little bit of necrophilia stuff, as I, as I said at the end of our last episode. So just, you know, you've been warned. All the greats. All, all the heavy yeah. hitters, yeah. Do you want to give a little background on the Brontes? Because, boy, they're almost more interesting than the books they wrote. Um, yeah. What a weird family. Was the vicarage they lived in all kind of run down and, like, I think, uh... Am I right in thinking the water supply was polluted by the graveyard and things like that? I think it was a very sort of down-at-heel lifestyle. Four siblings, when they were younger, they wrote those uh, fantasy things, didn't they? Those sort of uh, Game of Thrones type <laughs> kind of things. Uh, I think they were quite a weird bunch of people. Anyway, they were incredibly weird. So they were very deeply isolated. Emily Bronte, um, who was the, I believe, the youngest sister um, and, and certainly the weirdest of all of them, for sure. She almost never left their parsonage. I think Anne's the youngest. Oh, is Anne the youngest? I've been to Anne Bronte's grave in Scarborough, so I'm pretty much an expert. Oh, oh, yeah. yes, of course. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, well, Emily was one of the younger ones yeah. anyway. And yeah, she... they were the younger two, yeah. Sorry. In a weird family, she was one of the weirdest, I Oh, think. God, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, they, they really just sort of let the kids kind of run around and do whatever they wanted. Just real precocious Montessori crap. Like, these were some very free-range children. Um, but Emily Bronte, there's a story that I think just in- encapsulates her so well. Because these, these sisters were all sort of dark and twisted and gothic and romantic in their own ways. But Emily Bronte once was um, walking out on the moors and some rabid dogs attacked her and she managed to drag herself back and she cauterized her God. own wound <laughs> with a red hot poker. She is, she's she's a living Marlboro light. Yeah. Wasn't she really tiny as well? I think they all were, because I know I know that um 
Charlotte Bronte, I believe, was four foot nine, so she's the same size as an emperor penguin. Oh, I thought one was really tall and one was really short. Oh, that's interesting. I think Anne was just kind of normal uh, in, oh, in that Anne way. In that Anne way. Yeah, good old Anne. Okay, let's let's say let's start a rumor here that Emily Bronte was six six. Yeah. Charlotte Bronte was four nine. Yeah. And they were all creeps. So in 1847, all of the Bronte sisters published a great work of literature under a pseudonym. So the names they picked, because they didn't want to necessarily be considered lady novelists, they wanted the work to stand more on, on its own merit, so they adopted sort of unisex names. And their names were Currer, Ellis, and Acton Bell. And so Charlotte, who was writing as Currer, published Jane Eyre. Anne, writing under the name Acton, published Agnes Grey, and Emily, this year, writing under the name Ellis, wrote Wuthering Heights. And so Agnes Grey and Jane Eyre were really, really celebrated but Wuthering Heights. Um, I think people found it very disturbing. Yeah. So it was deemed by one critic to be, quote, the nightmare of a recluse. Yeah, West Yorkshire. That's, uh, I'm just thinking that the only other thing they've got is Last of the Summer Wine. I think Bramwell might have... The, the, I think the point of overlap is that Bramwell probably rode down Howarth Hill in a bath. <laughs> Almost as one of them did, yeah, at the very yeah. least. At the very least. Ideally, we want all the Brontes ride down uh, Howarth Hill in a bath. This but. is this is a niche, I think, quite um, British, what, 70s or 80s TV show, for those of you yeah, who don't know. It's got um, Peter Salas in it, you know, uh, Mr. Bontine from uh, The Palaces. Also played Wallace, lesser known role from Wallace and Gromit. So, yeah, it's got big names. I, li I like that you go with, again, the most niche. Like, clearly he was Mr. Bontine in this niche 70s yeah. BBC production. <laughs> Get out there and watch that. That's, that's what I'm here. I'm here to promote the, the palaces, really. Okay. All right. I, I like that a little bit before you were saying how, um, what was it, how basic bitch your reading tastes were. And now here you're just digging up everything from the BBC archive. Should we start? Yeah, let's uh, begin the book. <laughs> okay. So... The book opens on this guy named Lockwood, who has moved to the ass end of Yorkshire to this house called Thrushcross Grange. I'm never going to say that correctly. Thrushcross. Thrushcross. I kept writing Thrushcroft when I was... Uh, it, it, so I they keep, picked I a name that cannot be pronounced, which I wonder if that might be slightly the point. But just just know that if I start um, slurring Thrushcross cross Grange it, over the course of this podcast, uh, it's, it's just it's because it's difficult to pronounce word on purpose, and also maybe my ketamine just kicked in. That's a joke. Um, All of, I mean, names are going to be a Names are a big issue. thing, uh, right. I'm just going to warn you right now so that I'm going to confuse a lot of characters' names. That's fine. Definitely okay. keep all of this in. We're well, going to have a little, you can do a little ding every time we get do... a name wrong. So, Lockwood moves into this this house that is being rented out by a guy who named Heathcliff, who lives about four miles down the road in this other big mansion that he owns called Wuthering Heights. And Lockwood has made the fatal mistake of really liking Heathcliff and deciding, I want us to be best friends. So he sort of thinks chirpily that he and Mr. Heathcliff have so much in common because they both love solitude. And Lock Lockwood just sort of annoys me from the beginning because he's sort of the guy who would corner somebody at a party who clearly does not want to talk to him and insists that you reveal your, like, Myers-Briggs personality type. And he's like, I'm an INFJ yeah, too! Yeah. And it's like, well, why are you talking to me then? So he won't leave Heathcliff alone. He's really annoying. Um, he And Heathcliff is super rude to him at every turn. Whenever Lockwood just turns up out of the blue at Wuthering Heights, he's like, hi, buddy! Uh, he's completely inhospitable. The house is this gothic, run-down mansion. It has all these, like, feral dogs growling at people uh, in yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> that's and a great bit. Yeah. It's really funny. Um, he's like, Nasher, get back, you know? Yeah. Um, and Heathcliff even goes so far as to insinuate that the house is 
damn haunted, right? And and Lockwood just sort of derps his way through the situation. So he's another himbo. Mm. Um, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna find a himbo in every episode of this podcast. It's my right. It's my right as an American. Yeah, the 40th Amendment. So during one of Lockwood's many visits to Wuthering Heights, where he is clearly unwelcome, he gets stuck there in this sudden blizzard. And so while he's there, he meets these two other people, this sort of lumpish boy named Hareton Earnshaw, and he's not really sure what this boy's relationship to Heathcliff is. He, he Lockwood calls him the clown at my elbow, and he doesn't know if he's a relative or a servant or what. And then he also meets this really vicious young girl who has been married to Heathcliff's son, before he died, so she's, you know, Heathcliff's widowed daughter-in-law, right? And her name is Kathy. And one of the things that this book gets picked up on a lot by the casual reader is that it's hard to follow sometimes because there are two Cathys in this book, their mother and daughter. So this is the younger daughter, and she's not actually the main Cathy, so don't worry about her too much. I'll try to differentiate between them. Hey, she's just as main a Cathy as any other Cathy. Oh, sorry, yeah, you you prefer the the younger generation. I support the uh, second half of the book. I, I, I endorse this second half. I don't not support it, but she's yeah. not the Kathy people think of. So Lockwood sees these horrible young people. He's kind of weirded out. A servant then says, okay, I have, I do actually have a bedroom we can put you in, but Heathcliff won't let anyone near it, so you need to sort of stay mum about this. Um, you know, this is supposed to be sort of private. So here you are, here's your bed sheets and your towels. Also, there's a ghastly secret about this room. Good night. <laughs> and so he does some snooping. He finds this old diary and sees that a woman from 25 years ago named Kathy, this, the older Kathy, the mother of the two, um, used to live there. And so he falls asleep reading her sort of creepy diary and he wakes up to see a fucking ghost. So he screams. He screams for like nine days straight and he wakes the whole house up. And Heathcliff is furious that Lockwood has had access to this room, but he's more furious, weirdly, that Lockwood got to actually see Kathy's ghost. So apparently, she reveals herself to everyone except Heathcliff. And at this point in the story, we don't really know what Heathcliff did to her in life, but I love that she is literally ghosting him yeah, in the afterlife. Yes, yeah. Had a bad night, Lockwood, hasn't he? He returns to Thrushcross Grange in the snow and is ill and kind of hangs around in bed. Bedridden is the term, I believe. <laughs> His servant, Nellie Dean, kind of hangs around uh, in that way that servants do, and she reveals that she's actually quite intimately connected with Heathcliff and the rest of the gang, and sort of lays out some um, context for what uh, Lockwood had just seen. So first of all, she explains that Wuthering Heights was the ancestral home of the Earnshaw family, and that Thrushcross Grange was that of the Lintons, and these are the two big families that kind of dominate the novel. They're the only families in the area. This yeah. is such an incestuous little book. It's like somebody got two decks of cards and they're just shuffling them back and forth. Constant. Yeah. I think that's a really good metaphor yeah. for this book because there, are, yeah, there are so many characters that sort of marry in and move out, and yeah. move, you know, yeah, and swap names and things. What's the just uh, briefly also? I, was, I mean, how rich are these people? Because I was imagining they're sort of on the arse end of the gentry. Like yes, sort of, they don't have titles or anything, do they? they? They they're landowners, but the houses are fairly like I imagine it like a sort of, you know, when you go to one of those sort of country pubs and there's all like brass on the walls and it's like a big place, but it's still a bit, it's ultimately a bit crap. Yeah, I imagine them being a bit like that. It is revealed that Lockwood stuff is a frame narrative because Nellie Dean starts to tell him the whole story of what's going on with the two households yeah. and yeah, because she was a servant in both of these mm. households because they were so intermarried, she was sort of passed back and forth yeah, as yeah. the housekeeper. Um, and yeah, so there there are 
back in, you know, sort of the day, the, the time that she's talking about, there were two Earnshaw children in one household, and one is Kathy, who will become the, the mother Kathy, um, and her brother Hindley. And then in the house that Lockwood is renting, Thrushcross... Thrushcross... Nope, every time. Uh, Thrushcross. I'm never going to get it. Never once. It is hard, isn't it? I, yeah. I hate it. I hate its guts. But there were there were two children there who were a little bit sort of like weedy milk sops. Slight, they're slightly prettier. They're slightly they? prettier. Yeah. Edgar and Isabella. Yeah. Okay, so that that's the setup. We need two families, two kids each, and now we're back in time. Yeah, right. That's, back to the that's, 1760s. That's the cast. So one day over at Wuthering Heights, you know, back back in the day, Nellie Dean tells us. Mr. Earnshaw, the patriarch, and Hindley and Kathy's dad, is like, hey kids, I'm going on a business trip. And when he comes home, he's like, oh, I brought you guys a present. And <laughs> what he brought them back, he opens up his big coat, and inside is, quote, a dirty, ragged, black-haired child. Just like, oh, a feral child of my very own. Well, they all ask for nice things, don't they, uh, from Liverpool. Yeah. They're all like, oh, can I have a violin? And he's like... Didn't get you a violin. Instead, yeah. I got you a little twerp brother that yeah. you're going to hate. And they're like, oh, daddy, hooray. You know, There is Heathcliff. We found him. Yeah, yeah. They, <laughs> fa- they just found, he found this like wayfish child on the road or whatever. And there's a lot of racial ambiguity about Heathcliff. So over the course of the book, they call him a gypsy several times. There's one bit where they're not sure if he's of Indian descent. There's or Chinese a, or chi- as well. Chinese yeah. descent. And he's like, well, what should we name him? Let's name him Heathcliff. That'll be both his first and last name, like Moses or Cher. So Heathcliff and Kathy become friends pretty quickly. Um, they, they're sort of brother and sister, sort of playmates, sort of childhood sweethearts. So again, it's, it's very ambiguous and incesty. But Hindley, the older brother, absolutely loathes Heathcliff. He just hates his guts from day one and abuses him really badly. And Heathcliff, in fairness, can give as good as he gets. But Nellie Dean says, and and we're not really sure how true this is because she's seen a lot of stuff subsequently since Mm, they were all kids. So I'm not sure how accurate this is, but she she tells Lockwood that from the very beginning, Heathcliff bred bad feeling in the house. So, you know, he's sort of like if the the entire cast of Lord of the Flies was sort of stuffed into one human suit. So she seems to... It's good parenting, it just... Throw, throw some, like, cat among the pigeons and see what happens, I think. You know, yeah, yeah, the dad needs to buy everyone here therapy under the, like, you break it, you bought it. Rules. Yeah, yeah. Earnshaw dies, and Hinley has been at university, and he comes back, and he's married to a woman called Frances. And uh, he's a bit he's a bit like a Leopold in The Simpsons, isn't he? He kind of turns up at Wuthering Heights and goes, things are going to be very, very different around here. And uh, starts to kind of... Uh, bully Heathcliff even more and he says that Heathcliff is no longer one of the family he's going to be a sort of uh, servant slash feral boy yeah he makes him a manual laborer and just the most degrading yeah. tasks he refuses to let him like talk to the curate and stuff doesn't he like he kind of there's an idea that his spiritual development is being stymied mm-hmm. as well he's just he's ostracized isn't he he's brutalized and ostracized despite this Catherine and Heathcliff remain close and they kind of they're out there on the wily windy moors uh, rolling around in green mm-hmm. uh Although, the little vagabond children. Yes. And then during one of their sorties on the moors, they kind of come across Thrushcross Grange and have a little like kind of game where they're eavesdropping on the Lintons. And they're all kind of in the house, aren't they? Going, Father, may I have another glass of milk? And things like that. <laughs> and the kind of Heathcliff and Kathy are kind of like, laughing. And, they're like, what nerds? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And somebody says like, who just said what nerds? And <laughs> the Linton parents release, release the hounds 
Uh, it's yeah. a very Simpsons-heavy uh, bit, this, isn't it? It's funny, that. And uh, Skulker, uh, one of the dogs. That is but, a greatest yeah, name no, for yeah, a dog. It's a good name, yeah. Presumably he skulks. Smithers, what happened to Crippler? <laughs> I need to stop. Skulker bites Catherine, and so whereas Heathcliff gets sent home, you know, with a flea in his ear, Catherine is laid up Shay Linton's yeah, at Cross Grange. They were like, that can't be... Kathy, the, the little heiress of the house, she looks like a dirtbag, yeah. but then they recognize her, and so yeah, they, they take her into the home. So Kathy stays there for five weeks until her leg is healed up, and she, in that time, you know, because she sort of is able to get away from the roiling circus of horrors that is Wuthering Heights, she actually is able to learn better manners and kindness, and she comes back a little bit more prissified as well. A lady. She comes back a lady, essentially. Yeah. And Hindley's wife, Frances, seeing how much Kathy has improved, is like, right, I've got this great idea. Let's let's keep her down this ladylike path. I'm going to buy her fine clothes. I'm going to make her vain about her appearance. And then she'll stop running all around with Heathcliff, right? All this really succeeds in doing is teaching Kathy that she now has another metric by which she can manipulate people and be horrible. She's like, oh, I'm actually kind of a babe. I can use this to my advantage. So Heathcliff, meanwhile, is grubbing around in the dirt and only having sort of weekly baths. I think Nellie Dean says she has to force him to take a bath every week. So average teenage boy, mm. I think. Well, Heathcliff gets mad at Kathy for finally being introduced to soap. And this heightens a sort of sexual and class tension between them. And this is around the time that Heathcliff starts to, he vows to basically start choreographing this slow ballet of bullshit to make himself worthy of Kathy. And so he... He sees that Edgar Linton, the little boy from the, well, teenager by this point, from the other house, has started showing interest in Kathy. He starts courting her, right? And, and Heathcliff does not like this. So he's like, he starts dandying himself up. And obviously he's still deeply poor. He doesn't have access to nice stuff. So little prissy Edgar Linton thinks it's hilarious that Heathcliff, you know... This is a good bit, isn't it? The, you love this The bag. awful Christmas dinner. You are, you are champing at the bit. For, you're like, say it faster! So Edgar Linton, he makes fun of Heathcliff attempting to be a little bit foppish. Attempting so, the coxcomb. Yes, attempting the coxcomb. So Heathcliff smashes a bowl of hot applesauce in Edgar Linton's A tureen, please. Oh I my god. I proper... Proper crockery represented here. Would you like to say it? Would you like to retell it? You, the, just I want. I know you guys need to know that Daniel's eyes lit up at this scene. Just anything weird usage of food. Yeah, I'm fascinating. It's really like just why the to read of hot apple sauce. I, it wonder was... it's, I don't know if you're familiar with metaphor, but I think it's like the sort of uh, forbidden fruit or something. Uh, oh, do you think? Yeah, That's maybe, a good reading. Maybe, yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah. It's just a good bit anyway, because it's I'm just probably sorry for Heathcliff, isn't it? Because he's got his like. They're all like, oh, look at you with your yeah, your, your, your posh hair. Trying to do your nice hair, you look like crap, mate. And it's the finest of ripping finery. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then he just kind of whacks the guy, which is a good bit. I'm sorry, I should have let you tell. Yeah, it should be gravy, shouldn't it? I think, or I don't know if there's something much more degrading about applesauce. I don't know why. Yeah, I I could not tell. No, you no, I'm, I'm prepared to accept that. So, uh, Hindley and Francis have a son, Hareton. Too many H names in this book. I'm well, just going to say it right now. And too many tons as well. Yeah. Hindley and Francis have a son, Hareton. Francis dies thereafter of consumption, unfortunately. So Hindley is naturally quite upset about this and has a kind of breakdown and becomes an alcoholic. I mean, a real, like, career alcoholic. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, I was kind of thinking, from the way everyone else behaves in this book as well, I think they're all on the sauce a little bit. 
too. Like these teens just have. I'm not applesauce. Not applesauce. Am I right? Yeah. That's that's cute. Um, no, they all have malt liquor in their cereal. I mean, come on, for people to act like this, they're hanging out with Mickey Rourke. No offense to Mickey Rourke. Well, yeah, because there's that even that bit where he's kind of holding Baby Hairton and drops him down the stairwell, and Heathcliff saves manages to kind of leap in and save Hairton. So that's you know Edgar's kind of pretty much signed out. Uh, not a great. You mean Hindley? Hindley. Hindley's pretty much signed out. Um, oh, there you go. Number one. I feel like we need to keep a running total of name f**k-ups. So, in the meantime, Catherine starts to kind of drift away from Heathcliff and closer to Edgar Linton, as Heathcliff feared. And Heathcliff becomes even more brutish and twisted. And I love this bit about Heathcliff's deterioration. Personal appearance sympathised with mental deterioration, deterioration. He acquired a slouching gait and ignoble look. His naturally reserved disposition was exaggerated into an almost idiotic excess of unsociable moroseness. And he took a grim pleasure, apparently, in exciting the aversion rather than the esteem of his few acquaintances. Catherine announces that she and Edgar are going to get married. But then she adds that this is mainly in the name of respectability and money and that she nevertheless feels a very profound connection to Heathcliff and that she is kind of marrying Edgar so that she could even, like, get Heathcliff out of his kind of awful current state, doesn't she? But there's this, the key, this is one of the key bits in the novel, isn't it? Because there's that funny uh, semicolon where she, where is it? Where she, um, it would degrade me to marry Heathcliff now, so he shall never know how I love him. Semicolon. Turns out Heathcliff was listening up to that point. Doesn't know it's a semicolon. Thinks it's a full stop. Like, you know, how can you tell when people are talking? And kind of runs out in a rage. Then she carries on and does this whole... My love for Heathcliff is the eternal rocks uh, bit, um, yeah, where, we, so, where we see that actually she does have this profound connection to him. Yeah, she, this, this is one of the most famous passages in the book. And so there, this book um, is often touted as a romance, and then a lot of people tend to push back on that because everyone here is so awful and it's just so hate-filled that people are like, no, it's, it's really twisted that anyone could read this book and think it's a romance. But I think this passage is part of the reason why people do cite it as a, mm. a, a sort of big love story. I am not going to come down too hard one way or the other, but this passage, to me, does tell me that everyone, no matter how horrible, deserves just a bonkers boyfriend that you would burn down the world for. Yeah, yeah, it's a good bit. Uh, just the, this, but the semicolon device is slightly silly, isn't it? Isn't Heathcliff hiding behind a couch to escape one of Hindley's alcoholic rages, and that's when Kathy comes in and is like, Nelly, let's do girl talk yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So... Heathcliff runs away thinking, oh no, Kathy's engaged to this other guy. He doesn't hear how much she actually really loves him. The fact that she's largely marrying Linton because he's young, hot, rich, and convenient, but also she can use his money to improve Heathcliff's life so he doesn't have to always be under Hindley's drunken thumb. So after a while, Heathcliff comes back, and he's been away earning his fortune to make himself more socially acceptable to marry Kathy, only he's too late. So Kathy's already married. He keeps going over there to sort of flirt with his ex-girlfriend sister, <laughs> and mm. while he's there, Isabella Linton, Edgar's younger sister, starts sidling up to this handsome, rich Heathcliff, batting her eyes and being like, did somebody say horrible sex? Because that's <laughs> what we'd have. And so she starts getting really jealous because Heathcliff and Kathy spend way too much time together. And she confesses to Kathy that she's actually in love with Heathcliff. A fantastic preference, it's called, isn't a it? A fantastic preference. That, that is actually a very charming way yeah. of, of wording something. But Kathy's like, listen, dummy. He will marry you for your money and then loathe you after. This guy is a sentient pair of knuckle dusters. Only I am strong enough to deal with him and, and wrangle him. 
he like don't do it the this guy's no good <laughs> yeah no matter how straight he can stand up now that's the big thing is that he comes back they're like wow this guy can stand up straight yeah there's the implication that he'd been in the army but this doesn't really make a ton of sense because in the old days if you wanted to succeed in the army you, you know, had to be rich anyway you, <laughs> yeah. had, you had to be really rich anyway and your parents would basically or your family would buy you a commission yeah. in the army so they would pay the army to take you it's a bit of a mystery what happens. We never know for sure. They say, oh, his posture has changed. He walks like an officer, even though that almost definitely <laughs> yeah. cannot be the case, given his financial circumstances. But then he also has a ton of money, and they're like, well, where did it come from? Yeah. We, we don't it's, know. It's, we never it's find a silly out. Bit, isn't it? yeah. So Heathcliff is talking to Kathy, and she's like, hey, can you believe that, you know, dumbass Isabella likes you and whatever? And he, he's like, actually, maybe let's contemplate marrying her for a bit. And then he says, and this is so distressing, he says to Kathy, You'd hear of odd things if I lived alone with that mawkish, waxen face. The most ordinary would be painting on its white the colors of the rainbow and turning the blue eyes black every day or two. They detestably resemble Linton's. And Kathy responds with, delectably. What an unhinged couple. He's basically like, yeah, maybe I'll marry her. I'll beat the crap out of her. And Kathy's like, ooh, yeah. The, uh, what the yeah, hell yeah, is this? Not very nice, so <laughs> this is just... So Heathcliff is currently having the time of his short and horrible life just being a trifler and an all-around wrong-in, and he starts slowly winning money from Hindley. He keeps going back over to Wuthering Heights, and he's like, hey, you're kind of my older brother who hates me. You're drunk all the time. Let's play cards. And he slowly just takes over the house mm -hmm. as, as Hindley becomes more and more financially indebted to Heathcliff. Heathcliff all of a sudden is just like, and this house is mine now, yeah, I guess. Yeah. So Heathcliff is able now to get childhood revenge on Hindley for making him basically a servant by then making Hindley's son Hareton this horrible manual laborer, and he denies him the ability to sort of learn to read, and mm. he, he just really degrades him as much as possible. So he's raised, he almost can't speak like well into his early yeah, childhood yeah. because uh, he's raised so um so sort of it's abusively. Yeah, it's, really, it's really sad. It's it? really grim. It's um. Two wrongs don't make a right. I think that's what we're all learning here. Oh, I took the opposite message. Okay, I, I thought, right, okay. we're not, so we're not supposed to do this. No. So it's, it's really awful. So he's doing that. He's going over to Thrustcross Grange. Thrustcross. Nope. Every time. Every time. And he's, he's flirting with Kathy. He's flirting with Isabella. And so all of this makes just everyone furious at Heathcliff. And so they're all about to get into a huge fight over it. And Heathcliff is ready to sort of physically assault Edgar Linton. And he says, I'll crush his ribs like a rotten hazelnut. That's revolting. But, but Edgar Linton is so weak and so mealy-mouthed about it that they, they ultimately call off the fight. And Heathcliff screams that he can't believe that Kathy chose this guy over him. He's like, you know, this consumptive milksop... I wish you terrible sex forever. And she's like, yeah, well, if you marry Isabella, I wish you terrible sex forever. And to be honest, that's a... Direct quote, yeah. Look, I... It's not a direct quotation, but it's I am... The, it's the spirit of the book. I am channeling Emily Bronte. Mm. I am merely a vessel. Okay. Um... So Heathcliff storms off in a rage, and Kathy goes full dramatic 12-year-old and takes to her bed. And she laments that she's dying, and she threatens, I love this, but she threatens to starve herself to death, except when she gets hungry, and then she eats something. And she's like, but next time, I swear to God, I'm going to starve myself. <laughs> so, while Kathy's having her giant strop, Heathcliff finally convinces Isabella to run away with him. They elope. And this is kind of his revenge on Kathy for marrying Linton. It's a revenge on Linton for being Linton, and he just does a sick ollie over Edgar and Kathy's heads and is like, suck it, losers. And Topical reference there, the 
skateboarding. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. I like to keep my finger on the pulse. Cool. They run off and get married, and Isabella almost immediately sends a letter back to Thrust Cross Grange. Hooray, I did it! No, you did. You said Thrust Cross. Is- Isabella soon thereafter sends Nellie a letter. So she writes a letter back home saying, I've made a horrible mistake. I mean, immediately, mm. with- within minutes of them leaving the church, because Heathcliff starts, he does a complete 180 starts treating her really terribly, and she, she writes back home that Heathcliff is either, quote, a devil or a madman. And so he basically locks her away in Wuthering Heights. I don't know if you wanted to talk here a little bit about the Byronic hero, because Heathcliff has, he has this little thing where he talks about how he abused this sort of common literary trope to win her over. What, what does that phrase mean, Byronic hero? A sort of character, usually in a poem by Lord Byron, that, uh, <laughs> is kind of brooding and troubled and handsome and has a quiff and kind of has some has stuff going on in his life but you don't know what it is and he's kind of this sort of lonely sort of exotic figure yeah. it's kind of, I mean it's almost so entrenched in the culture that we don't even need a term for it but that sort of like a sort of rock star type but 200 years ago yeah so it was um it, it... Byron sort of worked this a little bit from the idea of the romantic hero, capital R romantic, of, you know, I have a lot of emotions and I'm passionate and I don't fit with polite society quite. And Byron sort of turned it more into, I think the the phrase that is often used is the fallen angel trope. Yeah. But then... You're going to stand on the edge of a cliff with your arms crossed, kind of your head down. That's what you do, don't you, if you're a uh, Byronic hero? And kind of go, don't bother me. I'm thinking on things. I'm thinking my deep thoughts and thoughts yeah. are like, yes, you are. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yes. But, I mean, Heathcliff is taking the piss. And he says that he sort of plays up being this sort of romantic, almost Byronic figure. But he perverts that so mm, deeply yeah. here. So he, he says uh, about Isabella, she abandoned them, her family, under a delusion, picturing me a hero of romance and expecting unlimited indulgence from my chivalrous devotion. So he was clearly playing this up yeah. to try to win her over. So there are multiple climaxes in the book, but I think this is really the big one, the big scene here, even though it's sort of halfway through. So um, despite this huge rift between their families where everyone hates Heathcliff, he manages to sneak back into Thrustcross Grange, nope, to see Kathy. And despite him having just married somebody else, they just, I mean, Nellie Dean lets him in and Nellie Dean, remember, is telling the story. So she's presumably in the room with them. And he and Kathy just go to absolute town macking on each other. It is just French kiss city up in here. And it's all very tortured and violent. It's not, part- well, it's not particularly sexy because they sort of paw at each other like sexual pumas. And Nellie Dean's just like sitting in the corner with popcorn. <laughs> just <laughs> right, being like, yeah. yeah, get it. So they are real handsy with each other. And then Edgar Linton walks in on them. Um, obviously, he's a... Not very happy. Kathy falls down into some sort of faint, and then we discover to our shock this whole time that she is heavily pregnant because they say a few hours later she gives birth to a little girl who they also name Kathy, who's the the girl we met at the beginning. Um, but then Kathy dies in childbirth. Right. So during Catherine's sort of death throes, Heathcliff has this kind of vigil outside Thrushcross Grange, doesn't he? And there's that funny bit. <laughs> I love this bit where uh, Nellie goes out to see him. They can all see him there standing by this tree. <laughs> kind of 
bothering them. And uh, <laughs> Nelly goes uh, to see him, and she sees that he doesn't look well, uh, Heathcliff, to say the least. And she sees all like kind of specks of blood on the branches on the on the trunk of the tree. So uh, she kind of surmises that Heathcliff has been repeatedly smashing his face into the uh, tree trunk. Then he later returns to the Heights, and. Um, I'm annoyed because you didn't mention the special gun in the bit about Isabella's letter. Isabella mentions in a letter to uh, Nell. I'm going to let you cover okay, it, Okay, well, it's, it's fine. I just love the special gun. Don't tell me how to do my job. No, I okay. was leaving it for you. Okay, okay. It's very, it's very good yeah. of you. It's very good of you. Heathcliff returns to the Heights, and we've already been informed in the letter from Isabella that Hindley has a special gun <laughs> with a knife on it. Uh, she's kind of like, what a weird special gun that is. That he keeps with him. Because you want a, a drunk to yeah, yeah, have exactly. access like, to it. This is my special gun. <laughs> That's what Hindley says, isn't it, at that point. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, Hindley asks her. He's like, listen, I see how Heathcliff treats you. You see how Heathcliff treats me. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. You and I need to partner up and kill him. Basically, you just have to not do anything. I just want to let you know, I'm going to kill him today. Yeah. Just don't say anything. And then... And she, then she goes and she yeah. tattles to Heathcliff. Yeah, it could have been could have been over so easily, couldn't it? And a much shorter book as well, uh, which is kind of the dream. Uh, You're assuming Hindley would be able to hit anything I in this state. It's a special gun. Who knows what it can do? Uh, anyway, so Heathcliff finds out. He does this whole kind of like uh, mad green beret thing where he jumps in through the window. <laughs> he and does. Starts like grabs the gun out of Hindley's hand and kind of batters Hindley, and, and it's, it's kind of it's a pretty intense bit. Uh, I'm surprised they never had a sort of Arnold Schwarzenegger version of this film, because you feel like that scene was lifted straight from an 80s film. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's... Or maybe like a, like a Western as well. It seems like a big bar brawl or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. It's a very action-heavy scene yeah. anyway, when you're not really expecting one. No, no, one. yeah. I was like, what? Yeah, Isabella tries to help him, because if Hindley gets his ass handed to him in this bit, mm. he's like, kill me, will you? So he beats him up. And when Isabella tries to help him, Heathcliff throws a knife at her. <laughs> Just this book. This book is bonkers. Yeah, no, I'm it's sorry. Crazy. It's a crazy bit. Yeah. And, but in that in that sort of bit, he throws the knife at her and she's like, okay, I finally had enough and she's able to escape. Yeah, she bolts. That's what the next thing is, isn't it? That, he, that Isabella is already pregnant as well with Heathcliff's child. She leaves Wuthering Heights and goes down south and gives birth to a Heathcliff's son, Linton. Um, yeah, just to make it extra confusing, she now has... A little boy named Linton. Her Linton Heathcliff. Now, yes. yeah, that is. This uh, this is yeah. why people hate this. I didn't find it difficult to follow at all. The names. I can't. I can't say them. But I have no problem tracking who's who. But you can see they're like. You're like. Wait. How many Lintons are there? How many Cathys are there? There's Heathcliff, Hareton, Hindley. Uh, it's yeah. like it does your head in a little bit. I did get confused, but I kind of thought that was the point. Because yeah, it's it, about like all trauma revisiting itself on the next generation. Yes, so exactly. That's what the names are for, aren't they? Yeah. Well, and that's why they have they have a family tree at the beginning. So just flip back and you know be like, wait, who, oh, yeah. who is this it's again? Well thumbed in my version. yes, exactly. Yeah. We kind of cut back to Lockwood, and he's like, Lorks, what a what a wild tale. <laughs> and uh, Nelly then says, Well, wait till you hear the next part. Because it may disappoint you, it's not as exciting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so she starts in the 1790s uh, now, and Kathy Jr., Kathy II, lives an isolated life at Thrushcross Grange, down in one. And um, Edgar Linton makes a special effort to prevent her from visiting Wuthering Heights. So she's kind of had this weird... Uh, sort of reclu reclusive existence, hasn't she? Where she yeah. She's never really gone anywhere. Her dad's like, oh, I know what What's best Holt Heathcliff you? did over there. You yeah. are going nowhere. Near I mean, it. I think that's legitimate. In, yeah. in fairness, I'm like, yeah, that's basic parenting, I think. But like her mother, K 
Kathy Jr. is a big, more rambler type. She's always running around looking at kind of... She's headstrong. She's She likes, yeah, doing what she wants to do when she wants to do it. She is out on the mall and she meets up with Hareton. Uh, she's at the Heights. She kind of ends up there and kind of is introduced to this guy who's her cousin, Hareton. And that's kind of a weird bit, isn't it? She's kind of... Suddenly the world seems a lot bigger to her. And she's like, I'm, I cannot be related to you. You are gross. Yeah. Meanwhile, we hear that Isabella died down south and her son, Linton, returns to Yorkshire. Turns out Linton's a sickly youth. Yeah, it, it doesn't um, Heathcliff call his son a puling chicken? Yes, he does. Yes. I don't know what that means, but I love I it. I don't want to be called that, personally. But uh... Oh, that's what we call you around the department, oh, okay, that's so cool. I should yeah. stop. <laughs> but he's a southern softie as well, isn't he? I like that. Because yeah. there's that bit, well, like, Linton's kind of like, oh, back in, back in Hampshire, all of my friends were either too proud or too prejudiced or <laughs> too sensitive or too sensible. But, uh... Then they all, uh, you know, put aside their differences and fell in love. And he goes, no, that's the wrong way, son, up here. You fall in love first, then you hate him. So uh, <laughs> that's the uh, that's the kind of big difference, isn't it, between North and South, I think, I've learned from this book. Well, I love the bit where Lind little baby Linton is like, oh, I did not even know I had a father. Mm. And Heathcliff's like, what, your, your mother never told you anything about me? And he calls her, he calls his now dead wife, Isabella, quote, a wicked slut. And I just want to let you guys know, you might have come across that in Victorian texts. It does not mean the same thing that it means today. Still not great. It's still not great, but it basically means um, somebody who's a bit sloppy, careless, loose, indifferently. Yeah, so it, it doesn't necessarily have sexual connotations, but it also doesn't not have those connotations. Time passes again. Heathcliff tells Nellie that he intends for Linton and Cathy to marry and... So, because Linton's obviously going to die soon, uh, Heathcliff surmises, he'll get the title to both Thrushcross Grange and Wuthering Heights. So he's got some kind of weird property wangle in mind via the, the marriages. I didn't really... I, I struggle with all this property stuff. All, just, the, yeah. all the entails and ownership and stuff. Yeah, but he's basically worked out some plan, you know, because he was looked down upon in his youth, he's going to use the next generation to sort of right the wrongs and make it so that he ends up the, the sole owner of both Wuthering Heights yeah. and Thrush... Crush, crush, yes, crush. yeah. I'm just going to mutter. that, sorry? Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. He's got some weird scheme plan. Nelly takes it on board and just kind of is like, I'm not going to tell anyone this. Uh. This guy is so toxic. He is a human three-mile island. This, I hate <laughs> him so much. Yeah. Kathy and Linton have this kind of on-again, off-again off clandestine friendship. They kind of write letters to each other, don't they, secretly? And they share books and stuff, and they, they kind of bond. Meanwhile, we have these comparisons between Hareton and Linton. Hareton's always this kind of rustic, gruff guy. Meanwhile, Linton's this kind of genteel, fey guy, and they're kind of repeatedly being compared, aren't they? And yeah. Hareton's embarrassed by it, isn't he? Hareton's really upset. Well, we have, again, in these sort of two boys, the dynamics of the three boys from the older generation. Yeah, so, well, they're like Edgar and Heathcliff in particular, aren't they're they? They're like Edgar and Heath Heathcliff, but also they're like Heathcliff and Hindley as well. So there's, there are, yeah, there's, a, lot there's a lot of, like, yeah. we're funneling in all the last generation's very complex BS into this little love triangle again. Mm. Um, so it's sort of being distilled down and complicated and mirrored back to us in, in different ways. Edgar Linton, he gets ill now too. Everybody's ill, aren't they? And Edgar's kind of like... Well, maybe it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if Kathy and Linton got together. He kind of kind of sort of washes his hands of 
keeping Kathy separate from things going on at Wuthering Heights. However much Edgar is well disposed to Kathy and Linton getting married, Heathcliff takes matters into his own hands, doesn't he? So he, he kidnaps Kathy and Nellie while they're out on the moors and imprisons them at Wuthering <laughs> Heights and says, you're not going to be able to go home and see your dad on his deathbed until you marry my boy. So, I would citizens arrest this jerk in just a flying tackle. I don't know, he, he beat the special gun. I don't think anybody else is capable of taking him on. So, Kathy is forced to marry Linton, even though they like each other perfectly well and her dad's disposed to it. It's just, you know, this is Heathcliff again, just forcing stuff that doesn't even need to be forced <laughs> at this point. So after Kathy marries Linton, poor old Edgar Linton over at Thrustcross Grange. Yes, nailed it. Did I nail it? I... Just said the Grange. So, uh, Edgar over at the Grange dies. And so Heathcliff now has all of the children more or less sort of imprisoned under his roof. Everything is just, <laughs> everything's coming up, Heathcliff. Um, <laughs> He's very similar to the Millhouse, isn't he? Yeah. Yes. But so while the, the sexton is preparing Edgar Linton's funeral, Heathcliff sort of does a... a pops by. Pop, pops by just to say hey to the sexton. No no ulterior motive. And he get, he pays him to take one side off of Kathy's coffin, the side that's facing away from Edgar, because Heathcliff has decided that when he dies one day, he's going to be buried on the other side of Kathy, <laughs> and he's going to have their coffins joined up. Um, so they can be in the same grave together. And then, Daniel, then he also reveals to Nellie that back in the day when Kathy first died in childbirth, he went and dug up her buried body to fondle it a little bit. Uh, and that sort of, again, corpse atrocity, a running theme in this podcast, mm, yeah. brought back Kathy's ghost, which Heathcliff could always feel but could never see. She was always just out of reach to him. And so this was the this is one of those famous scenes of necrophilia in any book that this was the the clue in the last episode, and I would say that this makes me want to curl up and die, but I'm worried that that would be just playing into Heathcliff's hands. <laughs> so then, very soon after his son Heathcliff's son Linton dies, what we're left with is what Lockwood basically saw at the beginning: this incredibly dysfunctional house, possibly even more so than it's ever been, where you know we have. The newly widowed and orphaned young Kathy, Kathy Jr., the feral Hareton, and the increasingly mad Heathcliff. And this ends Nellie Dean's story. She's like, great, Lockwood, you're up to date. This is the whole twisted scenario that has led to what you have seen whenever you go over there. So Lockwood, who kind of, I think he kind of realises he's probably in too deep. He thought he was going to go up, go up north and kind of live this rustic kind of romantic life. He realises it's a bit more hard going than it. These are not my people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. He notices actually that Kathy and Hareton, who is described as as handsome or rustic as need be seen, which I don't know if that's a compliment <laughs> or an insult. Um, he notices that they have a rather antagonistic relationship. So Hareton keeps trying to read. He's kind of thumbing his way through Kathy's books, and Kathy's a bit like. Hands off, you unlettered rustic. Yeah, exactly, unlettered rustic, exactly. And meanwhile, Lockwood thinks how great it would be if young Kathy, who's not a very nice person, fell in love with him. And he's like, but she's kind of hot and terrifying, which is my exact kink. Um, and he's like, maybe maybe I could marry her. And I'm just thinking, much much like Walton in the frame narrative in Frankenstein, Lockwood's not much of a listener. Yeah, all you've heard. All you've heard and you're still there. I'm like, my dude, there are other women in the world. 
So yeah, a year later, he, he goes back to Yorkshire to desolate a friend's moor. I don't know what that means, but I think we think like some kind of land management, burning it down or something. I, I don't really know Probably. what the moor-based industries are, apart from grouse shooting. Write in if you're in a moor-based industry. What it's does a... it mean to desolate a moor? Yeah, please do. Yeah. <laughs> so he comes back up a year later anyway, uh, Lockwood does, and he's like, oh, I might as well pay a trip to my pals, <laughs> who all really liked me at Wuthering Heights. So he goes there. Memory of a goldfish. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Nelly, Nelly now lives there, and she tells Lockwood that Heathcliff has uh, only just kind of recently died, and that um, in the meantime, Hareton and Kathy have become pretty sweet on each other and are planning to marry. No, no, I'm sorry. This is like the flowers in the attic, children. Just because you are going through puberty and shoved in a weird, creepy house together does not mean you guys have to bang. He, I think she also says that uh, Heathcliff keeps kept rabbiting on about Catherine's ghost didn't he as well he kind of becomes a bit he becomes unhinged i think doesn't he well there's a bit where he's being really abusive to kathy jr he and as he's sort of domestic assaulting her mm. he stops mid backhand or whatever and says that something in her eyes reminded him of older kathy and from that point that's when he becomes a, a complete recluse and stops eating yeah Heathcliff uh, gets buried as planned it's all going according to plan. What, in his twisted grave it's, with Kathy? Yeah, in his kind of weird three-birth grave. In his, his uh, Super King grave. Yes, yeah, so, <laughs> thank you, Super King grave. <laughs> I've never seen a Super King grave around these parts. Ooh, very fancy. That's what the people in Gimmerton are saying. They're also saying, the folk from Gimmerton are also saying that they've seen the ghosts of Catherine and Heathcliff kind of moseying around the moor. And uh, he kind of goes and visits the uh, graves, and we have this kind of, I thought it was quite a strangely touching final line where he says, I lingered round the graves under that benign sky, watched the moths fluttering among the heath and the harebells, listened to the soft wind breathing through the grass, and wondered how anyone could ever imagine unquiet slumbers for the sleepers in that quiet earth. So he thinks everything's all right. It's, it is very touching. It is also Lockwood who's saying this. Oh, no, no, I know, yeah. Um, and I just, I was left with, oh, you poor simple sod, these two nightmare assholes are going to poison the ether forever, and I am sick to bastard death of them. No, I think it's going to be all right. I think, well, we'll probably talk about this, won't we? But yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, the end, for now. The end. Question mark. The end? Well, I think we need to smudge the podcast with sage after that so that was Wuthering Heights uh good stuff I thought I love this book this book is very disturbing it's very upsetting I think it's dynamite so let's move on to the analysis section but first would you like to cast the movie version of this because I have a really a genuinely I believe in this casting choice see I know what you're gonna say and I know that you I can't surpass it so, because this is a book that is so deeply mean-spirited, you need somebody that can really lean into that. So what I'm thinking is, let's go do a, a sort of gnarly 1970s version where, where they really sort of method act. Oliver Reed as Heathcliff, he's sort of swarthy, he would really go for it. Faye Dunaway as Kathy, mean, weird, they would just eat each other alive on screen. I just want a film version where the audience leaves and their chest hurts having watched that. That is what this book evokes in you. You think of one of those controversial 70s 
Possibly directed by uh, Ken Russell, one of those kind of seventies films where yes, you, just it, they batter each other really, on screen. Yeah, yeah just, unpleasant going on. But like, even the acting style is combative. Yeah. Should we talk? Should we do analysis bit stuff? Yeah. So I was thinking about the term "weathering" because I was under the impression that it was a regional dialect term, but you seem to think that it's well that I thought it, I thought it meant kind of windy, windswept, kind of barren place thing, but you say that it might be a sort of fake Yorkshire term. They're not really sure, because in the version that I have, in the introduction, uh, the scholar who, I, I don't want to name because I don't want to throw them under the bus in case this is this is now proved to be incorrect, but they said that it was an ambiguous term that had no real definition that they could find apart from what Bronte claims is regional. So they're, they think Wuthering either was a real word that she is now recording here for the first time, but because it was so regional and so rural that it um, it didn't really get recorded anywhere else. Or she just made it up. Mm. And according to the introduction that I have, they weren't sure. But regardless, I mean, it, it connotes certain things, doesn't it? So withering, it brings up imagery of wither and weather or weather. Kind of doesn't really matter, does it? Uh as far as I'm concerned, whether it's a real Yorkshire term or not. This is all about a lack of good communication, um, a sort of doubling of patterns. There's all, all this stuff to do with writing and speech. There was a character that we have never even talked about in our whole summary. and that's Joseph. Joseph. I, I didn't want to talk I about I didn't yeah. even want to touch it, but basically that this whole time they also have this sort of what groundskeeper named mm. Joseph. Old retainer, I thought. Who, yeah. yeah, who speaks in an, a sort of dialect that is purposefully almost impossible to read like the the characters don't fully understand what he's saying and that's kind of the point <laughs> yeah but every time he came up you and i i feel like we're both like no yeah just no, he's not important i just kind of skipped over this yeah ones. um Harriton, when he's a little boy he can't really speak in any sort of understandable way he can't read hmm. um older kathy leaves diaries but her ghost won't speak to heathcliff uh, heathcliff perverts the idea of the storybook hero so he deliberately misrepresents meaning hmm. You know, to, when he's courting Isabella, he doesn't hear Kathy's declaration of love. He only hears half of that sentiment. Yeah, th this whole book is about bad communication. That happens a couple of times as well, doesn't it? There's a later bit where Catherine Linton, the young Catherine, kind of misses the latter part of a speech given by Heathcliff. So I think there is this recurrent thing of people ignoring of, or interrupting or failing to mm -hmm. hear the full <laughs> details. And then this this is all sort of um, conjoins with issues of doubling and the blurring of doubles. So, mm. you know, you have two houses with two families. Each family has two children. There are two couples, two narrators, two Cathy's, two Linton's, Heathcliff's. But Heathcliff is the sort of interrupting factor. The joker for, in the pack. For most of these, yes. Um, which I, f I find really interesting. So it's it's all is a book full of doubles, but then Heathcliff will pop up and sort of mess with it a little bit or make it more complicated or, or messier than that. There, there are doubles, but there's also a sort of sense of trying to square a circle that yes. doesn't fully work. Because Hareton's sort of a Heathcliff clone, but then he's also a Hindley clone. And... Yes. Yeah, so... Linton is a Heathcliff clone, but also an Edgar, Edgar Linton yeah, clone. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's very messy. This is a very messy... Plot, but that, that's the whole point, isn't it? Thinking also about when this was written. So this was written in 1847. And just the, the idea of how much this is still clinging to or working with romantic literature, even though that has long since passed mm. by. That's, you know, 20 years out of date, thereabouts. Most novels of this period are very urban, or they're dealing with sort of um, 
the country versus the city here. And we, we have none of that. This is so isolated and so rural. This is a very unusual novel for this period. Just really clinging to a, a past life. And I wonder if that's the point, because they're all sort of clinging to old regrets and wrongs. Revisiting and, old traumas. And, and, and yeah. old loves and things like that. Apart from, yeah, the presence of Liverpool out there on the fringes where Heathcliff originally came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's a kind of, a, it's a primarily rural text. What do you make of that? Because you did your undergrad in Liverpool. What what's the What's the connotation then of... Is it just the fact that it's a big port city and he's come from somewhere? Yeah, I think, well, that's what I assume that we're, we're imagining that Mr. Earnshaw goes to Liverpool to like sell wares or whatever, yeah. you know, kind of with like grain merchants or whatever it is they farm at uh, Wuthering Heights. He just finds this lad. Is this a Jack and the Beanstalk metaphor of... <laughs> yes, there is a bit of that, Kathy, isn't there? I sold our cow. Well, there's only these, seven plots on there, so magic I suppose. Heathcliff. Yeah. <laughs> but, but by extension, the other thing is, especially considering this is set in the 18th century, Liverpool was a big slave port, wasn't it? Oh, So you kind of wonder if there's something going on there about Heathcliff's ethnic ambiguity. And if... it, he sort of loses the racial connotation as he goes on, doesn't he? As yeah, he it starts off, they're all like, they call him this dark Lascar child. and Gypsy and uh, yeah. yeah, but that's kind of goes as he gets older. But then as he gets older, that, that completely disappears in a way that's it's quite intriguing. It's almost like um well it's especially as he gets rich. Yes. Yeah. And all of a sudden everyone just focuses on how hot and rich he is mm. and they, they completely drop any of the racialized stuff. Also on him being from Liverpool, there are some analyses of it that he's like the sort of commerce kind of entering into this formerly self-contained mm. rural economy and sort of changing it and you know all of his like weird property machinations there's a sense that he's like taking over and commodifying the land and what new money as opposed to some sort of gentry well i think it's like yes uh, like landlord an old kind of quasi feudal structure is being broken down into a kind of proto-capitalist one. Oh, that's there's interesting. a kind of historical materialist that. reading of heathcliff um which that makes a lot of sense that's the sort of thing actually. i would like but my question for you, which is a much more maybe simplistic question, is this a love story or a hate story or a redemption story? Because I think it's equally read under all three lenses. But if you had to pick one... I kind of thought it was about redemption. I was uh, very... a little bit touched, actually, about with uh, with, <laughs> with young Cathy and Hareton kind of getting together and... yeah. Lock, maybe I'm the Lockwood uh, reading this. I read this with a kind of Lockwood hat on, but with him looking at the graves and being like, you know, it's all over now. Oh, this is where Daniel admits he's a himbo. <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah. But what say what you think it's pure hate? The thing is, I I actually really hate these distinctions. I don't You think... asked the question! <laughs> That's not very fair. You put, you've really thrown me under it, haven't you? Sorry. Go on, no, carry on. Sorry, I was going to say I don't like the distinction. I thought you were going to push back and go... But you simply can't. No, you make said you things. must pick one. So I was like, well, I'm just gonna have to bite the bullet. Oh, you're <laughs> a rule follower. Okay, yeah. right. Sorry, I thought you were really going. You fight me on everything else. I thought you'd fight me on at least the the framing of this question. No. What? Well, so you think it's impossible to differentiate? I don't think you can hate somebody this much without loving somebody that much. Like a country song. Every other category in this story is so blurred that why shouldn't its overall categorization also be blurred, I think. is That's true. If, yeah. Look, okay, in fairness. I think you're right. If I had to pick one, though, if I had to absolutely lean on one, I'd say this is a hate story. He doesn't do that much by way of being redeemable. Well, I don't think Heathcliff's redeemed. I think it's more just the the, the, the world. The, okay. Uh, yeah, the little world kind of, we can see that it's, it's light at the end of the tunnel. I was just going to say, 
It's a very dog-heavy book, isn't it? it? There are loads of dogs in this. Why is that, do you reckon? Do you well, reckon? you said that thing at the beginning about uh, Emily... Just the wildness of it? People can either be loyal or vicious or maybe both. Well, yeah, but it's, I think I was just imagining it in a very prosaic way that it's just that sort of landed world where you need to have dogs. But yeah, also, you're right. It's it's a dog-eat-dog world, but you know when people mishear that and say dog-eat-dog world, it's also a dog-eat-dog world, isn't it? <laughs> uh, which is obviously much nicer than a dog-eat-dog world. Well, sorry, I was smirking because I knew exactly, I was like, I know where this joke is going and I approve of it. <laughs> yeah, it's crap. Yeah. No, I like, no, I liked it. Okay. Great. So, uh, I, believe, I believe you have some advice relating to reading books. So I do have some advice, and I think this book has shown us that you cannot really make assumptions about any literature of a specific time period. If you, I said Victorian novel, many of you would tune out and yet listen to this plot, right? This is, it's sexy, it's violent, it's weird. I guess the important thing to remember is that in all time periods there were probably just as many different sort of styles of writing and authorship as there are today, so if someone in the future said, oh, well I don't like books between 2000 and 2100, that would sound ridiculous if you think of the scope of literature today. So, mm. you know, give give books from any time period, even if you've read two, three, five, ten of them, give it another go. Try to read really widely. Um, because, you know, th there are different forms of authorship out there, so just don't make assumptions. Part of me wants to be sarcastic when you say this and be like, you think a book from the 1840s is going to be boring, and it's far more boring than you could have even imagined, <laughs> so, you know, yeah. uh, don't don't be prejudiced, it could be more boring. But you are right, especially, just like the 1840s by itself, the yeah. amount of... The transition work, like, of the, what literature The, the is. number of people working back then, and like the, the variety between them there. Mm -hmm. I think even within the Brontes, you know, that, that joke about... Charlotte and Emily, you know, that that cartoon strip of them kind of dude watching and they like these kind of horrible men and Anne is like, <laughs> no, no, he's clearly dysfunctional. Yes. Even even the Brontes are quite various, aren't yes, they? Yes, so. yeah. So just, you know, try not to let Hollywood's perception of what these types of novels are and what this time period can offer you, don't, don't let that influence your reading list too much. Give it even one more, always one more chance. Yes. Uh, sorry, did you have any advice? I just think if there's a sort of like slightly proggy... 70s pop song about a book, probably a good sign. Do we have a clue to the next episode? Kind of Welsh, I'd say. Kind of Welsh? Yeah. Okay. Like, it's not Welsh, but it's kind of Welsh. <laughs> That's not helpful! Well, I think, because last time you said the clue was too obvious. So it this was? Is, yeah, okay, all right, so all right. a bit more. My, my clue to the next episode is that it is sort of set over the, the Christmas holiday period. There is a lot of unexpected violence and sexual temptation at Christmas. There's also a major movie coming out about it soon. Perfect Christmas material, isn't it? Time for the summer. It is not a Christmas carol. No. That yeah, there's no violence and sexual temptation in that, is there? There is if you look for yeah, it. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Alright, email us at savemefrommyshelf.com or tweet us at smfms underscore podcast and um, tell us the classic lit that you thought you would hate and ended up loving, because I really thought I was going to hate this book when I had to read it in my undergrad, and it ended up being the best book I've ever read in my entire damn life. Or the reverse, if you thought you were going to love it, and turned out otherwise. Ooh, good one, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just tweet us anything, really. Do we have a better sign-off this week? Thing? I don't think you need one. I think just cut there. Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is... The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart, and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. 
contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not, I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you. 